we're going to look at that passage that we read. We're going to really zone in on the last verse of it in verse 14. In verse 14, it says, brothers, we urge you, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak, and be patient with all of them. And so what we're going to gain from this lesson, I know there's only, there's only a few words in this verse, and that's a good thing, because that gives us time to, to think about the kinds of people who this passage is talking about and the kinds of ways that God says we should approach and care for those kind of people. And I really just want almost this lesson, not just to learn what those principles are, but to, dis- to start developing the skill of ministering to the people in different situations. And I'm having trouble getting the clicker to work. Where do I point? Well, I got to the first slide. Oh, they did that. We got it. Thanks. So be patient with me. Um, Here's the three categories, okay? And I left off the fourth one. That's for the end. Be patient with all of them. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. We're going to start with the overview, and we're going to have like a 10-minute introduction, okay, before we really get into it. Um, So again, be patient with me. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Here's the ideas we have going on here. Think of a group of soldiers who are marching in line to a battlefield or to a destination, and you have one of those soldiers step out of line, off the path. That is someone you need to admonish. You need to warn because they're in danger. They've stepped away from the group. They're the most prone to get shot or to get lost. And what you need is just the commander or one of the peers to say, hey, 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 come back. We need you back here. This is for your good. This is for our good. But then there's other people in that line who might be uh, scared or losing heart. They're the people who they don't know really when they're going to cross into enemy territory. They don't know who's hiding behind the trees that they're walking past. And they're starting to wonder like, Am I up for this? Do I want to keep walking? I don't know how far it is. Am I going to be able to make it? And then you have people who might have a limp or their backpack might be heavier than others. And that's the person who's losing strength. So these are, these are three different kind of people who warrant a different way to treat. You shouldn't treat them all the same, right? You don't want to help along the person who's wandering off. And you don't want to scream in the person's face who's really just struggling with a heavy backpack. You might want to actually just instead take some of that weight and help them along or give them a shoulder to lean on. So we have three very different kinds of people to treat. Some might need to be woken up a little bit to the implications of what it might mean to step out of line. That's dangerous. Some of them might need to be built up and encouraged like, hey, you've made it this far. You're going to make it. Look at all the people around you. Look at the leader we have. We're going to be okay. Or some people need to be lifted up. They actually just need that shoulder. They need someone to lean on. And that's, that's the heart of Palmetto. I feel like this is a very Palmetto-ish message. We have a uniquely strong body at 
doing the work of ministry, we have leaders who realize it's their job to equip you to do the work of ministry to each other. And so we want everyone to be uh, mobilized and motivated and matured. That's the goal. Here's three just concise ways to think about these categories. The one person who's heading towards danger, you want to speak clear warnings to those running towards danger. You want to shower hope-filled promises to those in despair. And you want to supply meaningful support to those out of their depth. So this was a quick overview to get you on the same page. And now we're just going to do a little bit of introductory, okay? If you haven't picked this up already, this message is aimed at everyone. Right? There's, there are some places in the Bible that have a specific weight for a specific person, right? So the same weight, husbands, love your wives. That's not as weighty to a child as it is to a husband, right? And so there's some places where it's like Paul's talking to Timothy about how to lead a congregation or how to minister as one of the leaders, I don't think that's what this is about. I don't think this is aimed at leaders in the church. I think this is aimed at the brothers, the sisters, the actual congregation. The congregation is the one who needs to listen up and hear this part. This is how we minister to each other. And let me just, you know, maybe say what's going on in your mind. You might say, actually, no, I don't think that's my responsibility. And here's a way that you could look at this passage Some would say, verses 12 through 13, we already read that. That's about submitting to those in the authority and respecting those who are working hard on your behalf. Um, Don't, you know, start disrespecting them and, and walking out of line, but respect those above you. And so it could kind of follow that the next verse is a switch. So first I'm gonna address the congregation about their submission to the leaders, and now verses and that verse 14 is about, going to be about the leaders, how they treat the congregation, right? So what might have happened was uh, the leaders were um, a little bit uncaring or untactful in how they were caring for the congregation. So Paul needed to remind the congregation, hey, you still need to submit and respect even though they're flawed. And hey, leaders, remember, care for people tactfully and carefully. Don't just treat everyone the same. Don't, don't use duct tape for everything or a hammer doesn't fix everything. You need to care for people in a way that's fitting to the situation that they're in. With that being said, I don't think we can brush off this responsibility. Even, even if it was aimed at the leaders, would it not still be helpful for us to take this in and how to minister to each other? But still, I think it's aimed at all of us because you can't brush off at the very beginning of verse 14, it says, brothers. And at the end of the chapter, it says, we want this to be read to all the brothers. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. That address is typical when you're talking to the whole congregation. And I think that's what this passage is talking to. It's who it's talking to today. It's talking to all of us. Here's another maybe uh, obstacle in the way. You might say, okay, I, I do have this responsibility. I get that, but I really just don't have that ability, especially like right now with things that are going on. And I have to be really careful with this tension because I'm talking about a responsibility 
that all of us have, but you also have other responsibilities, right? Like this isn't the only thing. We're not in a vacuum with, with this message. And I really, I trust you to figure out what are the legitimate obstacles in your way from ministering more into other people's lives. But from my perspective, I, I want to push us one direction, and it's up to you to resist or not, okay? I want to push us towards more ministry to each other. And I want to try to knock off one obstacle that we might think is in the way, specifically because I see it here in the passage, and that's financial freedom. You might think, I don't, I'm, I'm not financially free enough to pour into people in this way. And that's tough. But I think Paul is actually writing to lower class Christians economically. It's one of the reasons why he worked night and day so he would not be a burden to the congregation. What kind of burden? A financial burden. Because they were struggling to, to give enough to support Paul. So Paul exemplified how to work in order to not be a burden economically to this church. So we can assume this church isn't flowing in money. And the other thing that we can assume then is that Paul pushes this responsibility on the people who are actually very tied down by their careers. It'd be really presumptuous of us to think that Paul is only pressing this on people who don't have worries or cares and can therefore minister easily. Paul has an understanding of real life, and yet he's still calling us to what is the norm of gospel-transformed living, sacrificial love and care for others. And that's because Paul also has a real understanding of the real gospel that we believe in. That in the midst of our own struggles and burdens, we're still pouring into other people. And that's where Paul worked so hard to exemplify it himself. I work night and day that I might not be a burden to any of you while I proclaim to you the gospel of God. So we're going to have to fight our flesh here. That's going to say, I don't have this ability. I don't have this responsibility. And I want us to listen to God saying, you can and you should. Here is, here's the heart of this message, okay? Using the wrong tool can be dangerous, which is the negative way of saying using the right tool can be effective and meaningful. And here's just a little analogy, okay? I work for a, a moving company, and when you're moving someone's house, everything's shifting around in a few hours. And one of the things that I constantly lose are my tools, uh, right now I have two tool bags because at one point I lost one and eventually I bought another one and then I got the other one back. So I constantly have tools that are just cycling in and out. Well, one of the times I lost my one and only tool bag, I didn't want to go buy another one. So for a long time, I was just like functioning off of like one or two tools. I had a screwdriver and like a wrench. Uh, and that's all I would, and, I, and there's a lot to dissemble in people's houses and reassemble but, the, you know, that got me pretty far. And for about a month, I thought I was doing okay. You know, because sometimes people have tools at their house or I'd rely on another coworker who brought tools. But here's the problem with me only bringing one or two tools to my job each day. It can lead to a lot of different feelings. It can lead to overconfidence, assuming that I have what I need 
when I show up to a job and being, um, uh, well, overconfident was the key word because a lot of times I let the customer down. I was like, sorry, I can't take that apart for you. Um, but it can also lead to worry. Like I never know if I'll have what I need when in this situation ahead of me. Um, it can lead to frustration because there's a lot of different types of screws and my tool only worked for like one or two of them. And whenever I would see the second to the right, like a, a dumb star bit, I'm like, why, why do we need more bits? Like, I feel like it's just a way to make money. You need to buy more tools to work for more screws. And, and I could get really mad. Like, why does this uh, piece of furniture have to have this unique screw that I cannot get out? And what can happen is, I can actually become a very dangerous worker in someone's house because say you start with a screw like this and I use the wrong tool on it. Well, if I start to turn it, it's going to start looking like that. And if I continue to turn it, then it's going to look like this. And I've actually now damaged the thing I'm supposed to be fixing because I didn't bring the right tool to it. Right? And so this is the analogy for how we treat people. Sometimes we're just used to just Always one method, this is what has worked for me, and so this is what's going to work for them, and I'm going to treat everyone the same way. And I think the thing we have to be careful of is that we might not just be missing out on ways to minister to people effectively. We could actually be hurting them. And so when someone does come around with the right tool, they're damaged. And it's going to be harder for someone with the right tool to actually minister to them. So this is one of the ways that we care for people, and we want to use the right tool. The right tool can be effective. Don't run away from people that you're not, you know, like familiar with or comfortable with, and don't get mad at them because they're that star bit, that special screw, and you just... Don't get mad at them. Don't hide from them. You don't need to run from them, and you don't need to damage them. I want this message to be about expanding our toolbox, okay, so we can minister to people effectively in a way that's appropriate to what they're going through. In a diverse body, we're going to have people that God brings into our life where it is good to think outside of the experience of what has worked for you. In one sense, it is good to think through the lens of what has been helpful for you in determining what should be helpful for someone else. But in another sense, it's not. Because if you take the golden rule too literally, you can take it too far. Because sometimes people don't want to be treated the way that you want to be treated. That's just the reality of diverse people. And that's a good thing. There might be a, tons of tools, and that's just a way for uh, companies to make money selling more tools. But God has made a diverse group of people for a glorious reason. It's good that we're not all clones of each other. So let's minister to people in a way that's effective and appropriate to what they're going through. I'm sure you have appreciated it when you have felt like God knows exactly who you are, and is ministering to you exactly how you need. And when someone in the congregation knows you, 
and has appropriately applied grace in your life in a way that was like, that was exactly what I need. Let me read a few Proverbs, okay, that just speak to this importance and we'll jump into the passage, okay? Because there is one sense where we fully rely on the Holy Spirit to do the one that's building up each other as we minister to each other. And we could, we could really mess things up. We can really say some dumb things. Um, and even I was, the first thing I was told when I went to like a um, Bible class at Bob Jones, I think it was Dr. Olinger, was like one of the first things he ever told me. He's like, you're going to have to be a bad preacher for a long time before you're a good one. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to say a lot of stupid stuff along the way. And I can take encouragement that the Holy Spirit can still bless when I don't say things perfectly. And I could say things perfectly and the Holy Spirit doesn't bless. We need to rely on the Spirit. But our responsibility is actually to seek the avenues that God says he blesses. And I think one of the things in Proverbs that we can learn is that there actually is a wise way to care for people and to pursue the kind of speech that brings healing to a person's specific situation. So just listen to these. These are all from Proverbs. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. There is wisdom that God wants us to pursue in how we approach, how we conversate, and how we minister to the people around us. And I think he's telling us to, to think carefully of what tool you're using. And this skill is not just beneficial for how you treat the people around you. This skill has a twofold benefit because as you learn what is effective in ministering to others, you actually learn what is effective in ministering to your own heart. Because you might resonate with one of those three categories where you actually feel like the person whose backpack is really heavy or you feel like you're walking with a limp. Well, what does that mean? Where do you go in Scripture? God has specifically and profoundly spoken to our needs And when you understand who you are and what you're going through, you can be more quick to run to the places where God has already spoken what you need. Let alone be quick to give that to others. Let's... One more introductory thing, okay? And then we'll get to the text. I I attempted something crazy a few years ago with my brother and some friends. You guys know the Foothills Trail around here? It's like 77 miles, and that's like almost three marathons. And my brother and I and some friends were like, I want to do that all in one go. We want to we wanna run that in 24 hours. And we failed twice. Um, but we learned a lot of lessons on that run. And that was part of the reason I wanted to do it. It's like I knew, I knew there were some sermon illustrations ahead. Um, On that run, I was all three of these kind of people 
multiple times, right? People aren't as simple as being all one or the other. And they can be, multi- they, so they can be multiple at once and they can be changing constantly. And that was me on this run. There were times when I was just so sick of running that it's like you start to think, well, like what trails could be like a shortcut? <laughs> and at times where like I needed someone to just like yell in my face and be like, wake up. There was actually a time where I fell asleep while I was walking. Like, like, like my eyes opened back up and I was like falling off the trail. And I needed to be woken up. I, needed, I need someone to scream next to me. And there were times I needed encouragement because I was like, there is no way I'm making it another 10 steps, let alone another 10 miles. And then there were times when I legitimately was just like struggling with the backpack or had some blisters developing, and I needed someone to like share some extra socks, share some water or some fruit snacks, whatever we had for energy. I, I went through so many phases, and so did all the other guys. So I realized about myself, I can be all three of these people, any combination of them, and I also need to be ready to minister to all three of these kind of people because the people around me were going through those phases too, right? And I wasn't the only one that needed them. They needed me. And we'll, we'll finish with that story at the end. I'm saving some of that. But let's hop to the context. We read this right at the beginning of our passage. And I think this is so important because there are some massive theological concepts here that I think drive us and free us to minister in an appropriate way. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. In that first verse, verse 9, look at the unshakable salvation that we have. And this is really important because when you're ministering to people, you're actually not the key factor in their life. God is. You're actually not the one that's holding all of the weight of their salvation. God is. And there is freedom and there is encouragement that when we mess up, God still upholds his promise and he will fulfill his purposes. Let that free you to minister to people. Don't be be scared and let that keep you from people. And then look at the verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Here's some takeaways from that. Sanctification is communal and it's progressive. Right? So communal in contrast to just personal sanctification. Like if you're going to do this whole, um, you know, Christian life thing, (laughs) good luck doing it on your own. If you're going to be wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting, you're going to need other people around you to keep your heart, your eyes, and your trust in one place. And you thought you weren't going to hear that phrase this Sunday. We need each other because in one sense, personal sanctification, if you take it too far, it's impossible sanctification. There is grace that God mediates through the congregation, through each other, to build each other up. When you go to Ephesians 4, it doesn't say building each one of yourselves up in love. You're building each other up in love. And then progressive sanctification, as opposed to instantaneous sanctification, right? Tell me that doesn't change your attitude and how you treat people. Because a plant doesn't grow in a day. 
And so rather than just looking to where how high that plant should have grown and guilting it for not being there, you look at the steps that that person has been taking in their life and the growth that has happened so you can appropriately encourage the next steps. We're here. Admonish the idol. This is, this is the idea of, remember, warning someone who's stepping out of line. Idleness is the specific example that's mentioned in Thessalonians. So we're going to read that for a second. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. You know this. It's clear. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we work night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. And as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If any does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And of all the things that can be taken from that somewhat long passage, just take note of the clarity that Paul knew these people understood the pattern of gospel living that was right and that should be followed. He not only modeled it, he taught that pattern when he was with them. And he says, you know this. And so when we have some uh, diagnostic questions here, it's important when you're trying to figure out where someone's at. Is there a level of clarity that matches appropriate level of guilt? You shouldn't, you shouldn't come in guns blazing saying you should be guilty over this if there's actually not clarity that that's even what they need to be doing. Clarity is a key part of this. And the intensity of deciding whether or not I should actually step in and, and, and warn someone and admonish them is to consider how much harm is being done. Is this damaging to their soul? Or is this damaging to the people around us? Uh, your warning might be part of damage protection. You're trying to limit the people who are being hurt and scarred. Here's the general principle. It's in Luke 7. This master of the house is talking to Jesus and he has a sick servant. And he said, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. That is the general principle of warning someone who's unruly, that there is a clear authority structure. There's things that Jesus is saying, do this, don't do this, come here, go there. And they're hearing that instruction. It's clear in their mind, and yet they go a different way. That's dangerous. And we want to warn people of that. But we also want to take note, there's, there's really some misconceptions about warning people and admonishing people. You know, a warning doesn't have to be overly harsh, right? 
And you know, a warning actually doesn't have to be accusatory. Penetrating questions can be a good way to warn somebody. Right? So sin sometimes is compared to being asleep. It's like when, you know, you're dozing off and you're not thinking about the implications of what you're doing. You're just kind of like stubbing your toe here and uh, kind of like sleepwalking. A penetrating question or even a simple comment can be something that brings to light those implications of your actions. And all of a sudden, a light bulb might go off like, oh, I didn't think about that. This actually is very dangerous. I actually, I, you know what? That is, that is not a pattern that reflects the gospel. And, and I want to reflect that. So, you know, you don't have to come in guns blazing on somebody. Uh, but be thoughtful and consider um, maybe... Maybe there's just some implications that can be brought to light and the Spirit can work through that um, to bring them to repentance. While we do warnings, there is a tension that you need to uphold. And Paul exemplified this. When you warn someone, you need to balance it with strong affirmations of care and being quick to forgive. Okay, so when Paul is writing to the Corinthians... I think he's addressing something that he had written in his first letter about someone who was in an adulterous uh, relationship. And in in, uh, 2 Corinthians now, he's coming back, and he's kind of doing a follow-up. And he says, now, if anyone has caused pain, this person who was in sin, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is, was enough. So at this point, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or what? He may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So here's the key. When you warn someone, the intention is to bring them back into the body, not to isolate them farther. And if we come down too hard on someone, we're in danger of actually isolating them and pushing them away. And Satan is waiting to capitalize on that. He is waiting to twist your warning into a reason why that person should not show their face again. Why that person does not need those people who don't really understand what's going on and who are being so unloving. We need to balance warnings with strong affirmations of love and be quick to forgive. So in the midst of our nastiness, we're not just ignoring it, but we're forgiving. And we're saying we love you in spite of that, and that's not a reason for you to run away. We want you to be closer. Let's go on to the second one. Encourage the faint-hearted. And this one for me, uh, I feel the least natural. I, I, I don't have the natural ability and proclivity to just encourage people. I find myself, sadly, more prone to do the admonishing. <laughs> to think through, oh, that could have been better. And uh, that does not excuse me from encouraging people, right? So the people who have the gift of encouragement are not the only people who should be doing the encouraging. And it's definitely not an excuse for those of us who have a personality more akin to a prophet to always default to loud warnings and strong rebukes. 
especially when it's a gentle and a soft word of encouragement that's fitting. So we need to think through our gifting and not excuse ourselves from the others because I know we got a lot of Barnabases in here, but it's not only for some in the church to do the encouraging, it's for all of us. And we need to find the times when it's appropriate. What Paul may have had in mind when he's talking about people who are faint-hearted, that word can literally mean small-souled. He could be talking about the Christians in the congregation who are really struggling as they count the cost of following Christ. Um, They're encountering persecution, and that's an intimidating thing. Uh, A level of persecution that we're unfamiliar with, perhaps. And you just think about the things that people can encounter for the sake of following Christ, like losing their families, uh, like being put to death. There are serious things that are on the line, and that can be um, scary. And that can be something that makes your courage waver rather than be encouraged. And so someone going through that, they don't need shallow cliches. They don't need someone to gas them up. They need to be showered with hope-filled promises. Because at your core, your resolve is directly proportionate to your faith in the unshakable and glorious realities and promises from God. You think about some of the passages in Scripture that so strongly just distill unshakable hope that we wouldn't grow weary and well-doing, but we'd be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain. And I, I want to encourage us with one passage. We want to be able to do what the writer of Hebrews is doing right now. When we see someone who is really wavering in their conviction and scared, and we want to distill strong and confident hope and encouragement in them, listen to this passage. For when God, and you're going to have to get through some wordiness of Hebrews, but for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. It was a fact. It happened. <clears throat> for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by not one, but two unchangeable things, in which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So when we're talking to people, we want to bring their situation to face off with the relevant promises of God, and we want to remind them how sure and unshakable those relevant promises are in their situation. There's not just one unshakable reality, there's two And did you know that the thing that you're going through, God has actually promised this about it. And God does not lie. 
you are bringing hope to discouraged people. When you say, the things that you might lose, you will actually gain a hundredfold. And that no matter where you go, God is with you because he is with you always, even to the ends of the earth, even once you pass enemy lines. And he is going to reward greatly. And it's going to be a joy to share in his sufferings. And, and you need to shower them with those hope-filled promises until at their core they find the faith in those glorious and unshakable promises, all of which find their yes and amen in Christ. Helping the weak. This is a hard one to distinguish from the other two because if you think about it, um, admonishing and encouraging are a form of help. But when we're talking about helping the weak, I think we're less likely. So in the case of the first two, you're more likely to be speaking into someone's situation. For this, I think it's more likely for you to be stepping into someone's situation. We're not talking about like a pat on the back or a flip of a switch. We're talking about a shoulder to lean on and an ongoing source of strength for someone who's struggling to bear the weight of their load on their own. This could be referring to spiritual weakness or it could be physical weakness or even just situational disadvantages. Something where they feel like they're reaching for grace and falling up short. They keep trying to come up for air and they're swallowing water and they feel like they're out of their depth. And we need to think of people like this, like people who have been bedridden for long periods of time. When you've been bedridden for a long period of time, you really don't need someone to push you out of bed. You don't really need someone to remind you about how great it will be when you walk again in a year or two. You need someone who actually can stand there next to you and hold you as you take your first steps again, as your muscles start to redevelop, as you regain coordination with your first few steps, slowly, one after the other. That's the kind of ongoing support, meaningful support and strength that we need to provide to people who are weak. So what I'm saying is counseling, congregational ministry, isn't about having the ability to do a spiritual mic drop and walk away. We're putting too much weight on ourselves when we see an issue and we think we need to have that one word that's going to fix it and we can go on our day. We need to be there for people for long periods, extended periods of time as people regain strength, as we're with each other. And you don't need to gain, be frustrated with people like this. God has specifically designed certain parts of the body to rely more on other parts of the body. And we need to be there for people. We need to be avenues of grace in their life. Think about Jesus' example. Because if you do think about this, Jesus is the best example of all of these. He's epitomized all of these. He's the perfect example, and we can look to him of how to be the admonisher, how to be the encourager, how to be the helper. And when we think about passages like, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden. If you've already diagnosed yourself in, in the, I need help from my weakness category, let this speak to you. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think about this. 
God is next to you bearing the weight. That, that yoke that you're bearing is like because he's carrying the, the majority of it. He will not let that yoke crush you. The weight of the situations God's put in your life, he will not let it crush you because he's there on the other side carrying it. And he's there to give you rest. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near. It's powerful. He will give mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And we want to be that to other people. We want to share their burden. Think of Galatians 6. Carry your own burdens, but also carry the burdens of those around you. And you don't want to be someone who looks like you can't sympathize. We're all humans here. People will draw near when they see you understand. And you be ready to give them grace and mercy and help. Are they struggling unsuccessfully? Struggling is the key word there. Because if they're not struggling, they might not be in this category because they're not even trying. But if someone's trying and they feel like they're coming up short, we want to be there to be that avenue of grace into their life. There might, there might be avenues of grace that they have a hard time tapping into on their own. Where there's days where they just feel like they don't have the strength to pray for themselves, we should pray for them. And when you feel like you don't have the strength to pray for yourself, reach out. Say, hey, can you pray for me? I need it. Let's be there to be a means of grace in each other's life. Let's move to the last one. Be patient with them all. You know, this is one that's going to pay dividends for any person-to-person ministry because where's admonishings for a specific person, encouragings for a specific person, helpings for a specific person. Patience is for everybody. We all need it. In every situation, we need patience. And I just want to start off this with a quick little warning, okay? If we're in a place that has relatively high personal standards, and those high personal standards are coupled with little patience, we're dangerous people to be around. If I bring my Bob Jones-taught, Christian-raised culture to my secular work environment, and I start demanding the same level of standard to everyone I'm around, I'm, I'm going to be mad all the time. And the people around me are going to be frustrated with me all the time. We need to have patience. And I think God is the epitome of this, who has the high and holy standard and yet shows in unbelievable amount of patience to those who are spitting in the face of that standard. And I want to read an extended passage from Nehemiah 9. This is um, one of my favorite passages in the Bible because I think it just describes us so accurately. So get ready for four slides that are like this. Um, And that's okay if you can't see it. Just close your eyes and, and think about it. I've tried to help with some highlighting all the things that God's doing and putting in glue all the things uh, you'll see. And you saw 
the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that, that when they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of a cloud, you led them in the day by a pillar of fire in the night to light them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by your Moses servant. Here's all these good things that God's doing. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you didn't forsake them. And when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. It keeps going. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them, nor the pillar of fire by night. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for the thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so that they took possession of the land. And I'm having trouble reading, but you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So they ate. And they were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies again. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, which saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest again, they did evil before you. And you abandoned them to their hand. You warned them again so that they had, um, enemies had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven again. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. But sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, every time in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For You are a gracious and a merciful God. Is that not a perfect picture? (laughs) God, this whole time has been so good to us. Blessings, blessings, blessings. And we turn our backs on him over and over again. We enjoy those blessings and we turn. And then we turn back to him and he receives us. We enjoy those blessings and then we turn. And every time he's there, because he's patient with us, the whole concept of progressive sanctification assumes the need for patience. And if we want to reflect God, 
we need to reflect his patience. Care for the people more than the problem. Care for people's souls more than the situation. Be patient with them. Let love cover a multitude of sins. We're not the judge that instantaneously when we see someone sin, we want to bring the full wrath of God onto that situation. A quick fix can be rightly backed by a strong desire for what's good. I think we need to check ourselves when we want to have just a quick fix, like, hey, this person did wrong, I'm going to step in, give a quick slap across the face, and we'll fix this. We need to check not just whether or not that's motivated by good, but also whether or not that might be tainted by self-love, by a love for control, by a reliance on the flesh, or even a dismissal of passages like we're looking at that call us to reflect God's patience. We're not just reflecting his holiness. Part of his holiness is his patience. So let's be people that reflect God through our forbearance and patience with others. And we looked at a lot of Proverbs so far, and, and here's one I didn't mention. If we're going to be patient people, we've got to be people who listen. If anyone gives an answer before he hears, it's a folly and a shame. You want to know a really hard place to do that? Social media. All it takes is one sentence, and we're ready to go off on somebody. Without coming even close to knowing the actual situation they're going through, let alone what they actually meant, or let alone what Scripture might help us to think through they need. There's a whole bunch of different social media platforms, and there's even things like YouTube, um, and this is, a, this is an ad I got on YouTube this week, and I screenshotted it and put it on here. I am so tired of ads. This one, if you can see, it says this is ad one of two. So when I click skip ad, I'm going to get brought to the next ad. And sometimes it doesn't give you the option to skip, and you have to sit there for like a 20-second ad before your video. I think that's ridiculous. Here's the reason I bring that up. It's really easy to make people feel like those ads. Where, like, we'll listen to them for five seconds or however long, but we're quickly going to be ready to move on to our video or our busy life. That impression is so easy to give, and if we're going to be patient people and people who get down to the real heart of issues, not just the situation that's going on, the, the problem, but what kind of heart they have that they're bringing to it, what's going down at that foundational level, then we got to pe- be people who don't click skip, who aren't distracted, who aren't ready to move on. we got to sit there. we got to probe. we got to grow in our knowledge of people if we want to really um, be a positive influence in their life. It's just like, how do you expect to get to know people on this meaningful level without patience? How do you expect to be able to minister to people effectively without patience? Like, how are you not going to get really frustrated as you're trying to minister to someone and they don't just change right away? 
you need to have patience, just like God shows patience to you, just like you need patience from others. None of us have perfectly attained yet. And there's things that we've been struggling with over and over again, like in Nehemiah, and we need someone who's going to you know, be there, who's not going to forsake us on the second time. In conclusion, this um, grid, you could call it, isn't meant to be restricting. I mean, it's supposed to be freeing. It's freeing us from our tiny toolbox, and it's freeing us to minister to people in a way that's meaningful to them and helping us figure out meaningful ways that we actually need to be ministered to. So the heart of this message is that we would be equipped to care for people in a way that considers both what God has said and where people are at so we can appropriately make those meet. And God knows exactly who we are and what we need. And as we grow in our understanding of that, we can be quick to go to the places where he has provided what we need. So I saved part of that ultra run story. This is the very last thing. We'll be done in about 20 seconds. When I was on that run, there's, it's almost an irony. Even though I needed to be there for the people that I was running with, I never would have made it as far as I got if they weren't there. That is the irony of congregational ministry. When you are pouring into other people, when we're ministering to each other, we're actually not weighing each other down. We're building each other up and helping us grow much more than any of us could on our own. Amen.